Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, American Dream, Martin Luther King Jr. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat for a white man on a city bus in Montgomery, Alabama. She was arrested and her case became the flashpoint for a highly effective boycott of the city buses by black residents. An organization called the Montgomery Improvement Association was formed, and Martin Luther King Jr., a pastor who had arrived in Montgomery only a year before, was chosen to lead the organization. By the time the boycott ended a year later, the Supreme Court upheld the lower federal court's decision that bus segregation was unconstitutional. It was a victory of massive proportions, and it placed King in the limelight as an eloquent and effective leader. In the years that followed, King would become increasingly prominent in the struggle for equal rights for African Americans. From today's perspective, he has, of course, become not merely prominent, but the towering figure, the very embodiment of the civil rights movement in the public mind. His address at the March on Washington in 1963, the so-called I Have a Dream speech, is among the most famous speeches of all time. His assassination in 1968 is remembered as a terrible tragedy. He's revered not only in the United States, where a federal holiday celebrates his birth, but around the entire world as the black leader par excellence. Where does King stand, though, in the history of philosophy? In the very first episode of this series, we offered King as an example of an Africana thinker who has, at times, been recognized as having contributed philosophically, even from a mainstream Eurocentric perspective on philosophy and its history. Yet even among those who specialize in Africana philosophy, the attention given to King has, at least until recently, been surprisingly scant in light of his stature. In this and the upcoming episodes, we'll try to convey some of what is philosophically significant about King as a thinker. We will do this in conjunction with exploring the thought of someone widely viewed as King's greatest rival, Malcolm X, also known as Al-Hajj Malik al-Shabazz. In this episode, we will consider King's development and contributions from his youth until the year 1963. As just mentioned, this was the year of the I Have a Dream speech, and also when King wrote his Letter from Birmingham Jail, which is somewhat less famous, but more obviously a classic of social and political thought. After this introduction to King, the next scripted episode will begin our coverage of Malcolm X's development and contributions, also ending in 1963, the last year during which he was an official spokesperson of the Nation of Islam. We will then look at the final years of King and X, each of whom was murdered at the age of 39. As we will see, both men were cut down even as their philosophical positions were evidently continuing to evolve in ways that complicate the popular picture of them as irreconcilable foes. Let us turn now to the context for King's rise to leadership. For starters, we need to understand the victories of the 1950s and 1960s against the background of a long struggle against legal structures of discrimination that had been ongoing since before the 20th century. We have, of course, emphasized in previous episodes the importance of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP for short, of which W.E.B. Du Bois was a founding member. That organization campaigned against lynching and segregation and for voting rights under the leadership of luminaries like James Weldon Johnson and Walter White. Another important activist we have discussed previously was A. Philip Randolph, the socialist organizer. 
The March on Washington was something that Randolph began calling for as early as 1941. An institution we've mentioned often is Howard University, a major center of Black intellectual activity, including, as we've emphasized, philosophers like Alain Locke. Some of the major driving forces of progress on civil rights emerged from Howard's law school. Charles Hamilton Houston, the law school's dean, trained many of the country's Black lawyers, including his greatest prodigy, Thurgood Marshall. Houston and Marshall both went to work for the NAACP, and their legal efforts began to pay off in the courts, leading to the iconic 1954 case Brown v. Board of Education, in which the Supreme Court declared school segregation unconstitutional. Beyond the most famous figures, institutions, and decisions, however, there were always lesser-known instances of resistance. The Montgomery bus boycott was not the first protest of its kind. Two years previously, there was a bus boycott in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This showed power of Black organizing, even if, as some think, it was called off after winning too few concessions. And Rosa Parks was not the first woman to defy the racial rules of Montgomery's bus system. There had been other cases of resistance earlier in the very same year, including by the four women who served as plaintiffs in the case against the city that eventually went before the Supreme Court, Claudette Colvin, Mary Louise Smith, Susie McDonald, and Aurelia Browder. It was, of course, Rosa Parks' arrest around which activists in Montgomery chose to organize. These activists included E.D. Nixon, who had been the head of the local chapters of both the NAACP and A. Philip Randolph's Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, Joanne Robinson, a Black woman professor at Alabama State College, who drafted the call for Black residents to stay off the buses, and Ralph Abernathy, a pastor of a local church who would, like King, become very prominent in the civil rights movement following his participation in leading the bus boycott. King was, by his own account, surprised to be elected to lead the Montgomery Improvement Association. What led him to this point? It is time to consider the path that led Michael to Montgomery in the first place. Yes, Michael, the man often known today simply as MLK, was born Michael King on January 15, 1929. He was named after his father, Michael King Sr., who, however, changed his name after a trip to Germany in 1934. That was likely no coincidence, given that this was, of course, the country of the Martin Luther, who changed Christendom forever. King Jr. would eventually accept the name change in his own case as well, although he was known as Mike well into young adulthood. As for King Sr., he was a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, who took over the leadership of Ebenezer Baptist Church after the death of his father-in-law, King Jr.'s maternal grandfather. With this family background, it's hardly surprising that King Jr. ended up in ministry. His father is naturally seen as his earliest intellectual influence. Like him, King Jr. pursued his post-secondary education at Morehouse College, the renowned black college in Atlanta. In the same year he finished his studies there, he was ordained at Ebenezer and left Atlanta to study at Crozer Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. After Crozer, he began seeking a doctoral degree in theology at Boston University. The years at Crozer and at Boston University were years of intense intellectual development, during which various thinkers pulled King in different directions. He was influenced by Walter Rauschenbusch's Social Gospel, which viewed a commitment to overcoming problems of inequality and poverty as essential to Christianity. King would later write that Rauschenbusch gave to American Protestantism a sense of social responsibility that it should never lose. On the other hand, he was also influenced by Reinhold Niebuhr's Christian Realism, a viewpoint according to which the social gospel is too optimistic about the human capacity for social progress. 
King credited Niebuhr with helping him recognize the glaring reality of collective evil. He eventually concluded that liberal theology's emphasis on our capacity for good, as exemplified by the social gospel, needed to be combined with an emphasis on the human capacity for evil, a point stressed in neo-orthodoxy, as Niebuhr's theology is also known. He expressed the point in this way, an adequate understanding of man is found neither in the thesis of liberalism nor in the antithesis of neo-orthodoxy, but in a synthesis which reconciles the truths of both. This talk of synthesis, reconciling a thesis with its antithesis, comes out of King's understanding of G.W.F. Hegel, whom he cited as his favorite philosopher in an interview with the Montgomery Advertiser during the bus boycott. Stephen C. Ferguson II, in a critical evaluation of just how Hegelian King's thought actually was, repeats the point made by many historians of philosophy, that it was actually Johann Gottlieb Fichte, not Hegel, who first introduced the language of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis as a dialectical structure. But it's usually Hegel who gets the credit. In any case, King picked up the idea from his studies of Hegel, both at Morehouse and during his doctoral studies at Boston University, and it meant a lot to him. In his first book, Stride Toward Freedom, he chose to explain the idea of nonviolent resistance, his most famous philosophical commitment of all, with reference to Hegel. Like the synthesis in Hegelian philosophy, the principle of nonviolent resistance seeks to reconcile the truth of two opposites, acquiescence and violence, while avoiding the extremes and immoralities of both. Hegel was not the only Western philosopher King read during his student days. He acquainted himself with major figures from the pre-Socratics forward, and was especially struck at various times by Karl Marx and those he grouped as the existentialists, Søren Kierkegaard, Friedrich Nietzsche, Karl Jaspers, Martin Heidegger, and Jean-Paul Sartre. It would be nice if we could celebrate what might normally be counted as his most important achievement in that period, his dissertation, but it was revealed in 1990 that King plagiarized heavily from other sources in his comparative study of the theologians Paul Tillich and Henry Nelson Wiemann, and other instances of plagiarism in his student papers have also been found. The use of uncredited writing didn't stop with his student work. King relied on ghostwriters for many of his publications once he became famous. Biographer David Garrow tells us that King's first publication, a piece called Our Struggle, that appeared in the April 1956 issue of Liberation magazine, was written by Bayard Rustin, and King approved it with hardly any alterations. Rustin was himself among the most important and fascinating figures of the civil rights movement, often overlooked and hidden in the history of that movement. This certainly has something to do with the fact that he was gay and had formerly been affiliated with the Communist Party. After experiencing disappointment with the direction of the party, he began to work with A. Philip Randolph on the March on Washington idea. He was also a founding member of the Congress of Racial Equality, which would become one of the major organizations leading the struggle for civil rights. Perhaps most significant in preparing the way for his fruitful collaboration with King was his 1948 trip to India, which solidified his status as follower of the nonviolent philosophy of Mahatma Gandhi. Before telling the story of King's adoption of Gandhi's philosophy, we should round out the story of his student days by mentioning that it was in Boston that he met Coretta Scott, whom he married in 1953. King explored possible pastorships in various cities, as it turns out, they ended up in Montgomery, where he became the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. 
Then came December of 1955 and his leadership role in what would become a landmark protest. He inspired with his words. He had his first experience of being thrown in jail, receiving threatening phone calls and various other forms of intimidation, culminating in the bombing of his home. As the struggle continued, activists from elsewhere were attracted to the effort. Rustin arrived in February of 1956, and his Gandhian pacifism clearly influenced King from this point onward. Rustin's ghostwritten article, Our Struggle, announces philosophical ideas that would be central in King's thought going forward. The essay claims that, We Negroes have replaced self-pity with self-respect and self-depreciation with dignity. And, using a trope we've explored a number of times, treats this rise in self-respect and this new sense of dignity as the emergence of a new Negro. Montgomery has broken the spell and is ushering in concrete manifestations of the thinking and actions of the new Negro. Obviously, Rustin's authorship of the essay complicates any attempt to place it within the development of King's thought. Rather than insisting that we can, or need to, tease out whose voice is whose in all of King's work, we will simply acknowledge that to speak of King's writing is at times to speak of a collaborative effort that reflects more than one person's perspective. In what remains of this episode, then, we will highlight some of the most important ideas that King, along with Rustin and whoever else helped him, communicated before the end of 1963. Following on the success of the bus boycott toward the end of 1956, King met early in 1957 with a large number of black ministers interested in fighting for civil rights. This meeting at his home church in Atlanta was the birth of what would come to be called the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. King would serve as its president until his death, and he would pursue his protest activities through this organization. Just as we have acknowledged the significance of Rustin, mention of the SCLC gives us the chance to highlight the contribution of Ella Baker, one of the most accomplished activists in U.S. history. She was already active as early as the 1930s, when she worked together with the Young Negroes Cooperative League of George Schuyler, whom we last mentioned in episode 77. By the 1940s, she was an extremely effective organizer for the NAACP. So by the time of the Montgomery bus boycott, she had decades of experience in activism in the struggle for Black advancement. She put this to good use by helping to encourage the founding of the SCLC and taking up a leadership role in the organization. She is perhaps best known, however, for her role in founding and guiding the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was inspired by the 1960 sit-ins by Black college students in Greensboro, North Carolina. As we will see in episodes to come, this organization would loom large in the civil rights movement already underway and the Black Power movement to come. In March of 1957, Martin and Coretta traveled to West Africa at the invitation of Kwame Nkrumah to attend the independent celebration of Ghana, the first sub-Saharan African country to gain its independence in the 20th century. This is another example of something we keep seeing, an ongoing connection between events on the African continent and events in the African diaspora. To symbolize that connection, we've used a photo from the meeting of King and Nkrumah as the main image on the page for the current section of our podcast series. Back in the States, the Kings left Montgomery for Atlanta in 1960, a natural move given King's increasingly prominent role as a leader. He met with President John F. Kennedy and encouraged him to sign a second Emancipation Proclamation declaring all segregation illegal. Shortly thereafter, in 1961, he delivered a speech entitled Love, Law, and Civil Disobedience at the annual meeting of the Fellowship of the Concerned, an organization of Southern liberal white women. While defending his movement, 
especially the recent actions of students, King argued that the first principle of nonviolent resistance is the idea that means must be as pure as the end. He takes Niccolo Machiavelli and Vladimir Lenin to be examples of thinkers who believe the end can justify the means and opposes this with the claim that the end represents the means in process and the ideal in the making. In this sense, he argues, the end is pre-existent in the means. That is, if you truly desire a future state of affairs, then your actions must be consistent with that state of affairs coming into being. If someone says they want to be healthy but eats nothing but junk food, you might doubt their commitment, and for King, the same goes for political protest. His philosophy of nonviolence rules out, at its most basic conceptual level, the idea that protest can bring about positive change if it fails to be peaceful. As the SCLC sought victories that could be comparable to the triumph in Montgomery, they participated in mass demonstrations focused on ending segregation in other specific cities. Over the course of 1962, much energy was expended in Albany, Georgia. In the words of David Levering Lewis in his biography of King, it is undeniably true that Albany was a failure. Few concessions were achieved by the time that King brought the SCLC's activities there to a halt. This failure, often forgotten when the victories of the movement are emphasized, provides a contrast with the organization's activities in Birmingham, Alabama, in 1963. Ava DuVernay's 2014 film, Selma, highlights one of the reasons for this contrast in a scene where King, played by David Oyelowo, points out that the superficially humane approach to arrests by Sheriff Laurie Pritchett in Albany meant that there was no drama. By contrast, Birmingham's Bull Connor attained global infamy as news cameras captured the brutal use of water hoses and attack dogs against protesters, including children. In DuVernay's movie, Oyelowo's King expresses satisfaction upon hearing that Selma's sheriff, Jim Clark, is more of a Bull Connor than Laurie Pritchett. What does it say about a commitment to nonviolence that one might knowingly and gladly lead people into confrontation with violence? The real king found himself the target of public criticism in the form of an open letter written by white moderate clergymen who were concerned about his tactics and involvement in Birmingham. The letter's eight signatories acknowledge the natural impatience that comes with unrealized hopes for change, but insist that local people should work together and address any persistent denial of rights through the court system. They condemn demonstrations directed and led in part by outsiders as unwise and untimely. They express the hope that the local Black community will withdraw their support from these demonstrations. It was in response to this letter that King wrote his Letter from Birmingham Jail, which reprises a number of points from the aforementioned speech, Love, Law, and Civil Disobedience. Though the letter drew on thoughts previously expressed, it is one piece of writing by King that he did write all on his own. It was composed in jail in the margins of newspaper, on scraps of paper supplied to him by a Black jail attendant, and at one point apparently on toilet paper, before he was able to put it down on a notepad supplied by his lawyers. The result was a philosophically rich answer to the clergyman's concerns. To the complaint about outsider involvement in Birmingham affairs, he famously replies, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. To the idea that negotiation rather than conflict is required, King agrees and argues that negotiation is the goal of nonviolent direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and establish such creative tension 
that a community that has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. He compares this kind of tension to the intellectual tension caused by Socrates in his questioning, arguing that both kinds of tension give rise to growth. In response to the suggestion that obeying the law is necessary for order, King distinguishes between just laws and unjust laws. The latter are, he claims, not really laws at all. Citing Augustine and Thomas Aquinas as prior defenders of natural law theory, he offers this account of the difference. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. King then explains that segregation laws degrade human personality by giving some people a false sense of superiority and other people a false sense of inferiority. If they are, in this sense, unjust in their content, they are also unjust at a procedural level. They constitute a code inflicted upon a minority which that minority had no part in enacting or creating because they did not have the unhampered right to vote. In light of these ideas, King identifies white moderates as the Negro's greatest stumbling block in the stride toward freedom. One can imagine how affronted the writers of the open letter must have been by this charge. How could they be more of an obstacle to black progress than the Ku Klux Klan, as King explicitly claims? The problem is that the white moderate seeks the absence of tension, which King calls a negative peace, rather than the positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Furthermore, amending his earlier discussion of the relationship between nonviolent direct action and tension, he argues that protest of the kind he endorses brings to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. White moderates are the greatest obstacle to progress precisely because they seek to keep this tension hidden. King's letter is, it is fair to say, a devastating response. Its indictment of white moderates in his time raises the question of how we should evaluate politically moderate views in our own time. This question is worth asking, especially because, in the present, King is acclaimed as a hero by people from across the political spectrum. Those who conservatively oppose such programs as affirmative action are known, for example, to cite King's famous line in the I Have a Dream speech, in which he envisions his four children living one day in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That line is, of course, just one of many memorable moments in that speech delivered at the March on Washington in 1963 that A. Philip Randolph had sought for so long to organize. At the level of philosophical ideas, perhaps one of the most interesting passages is the one using the metaphor of a bad check. It comes early on in the speech, well before the repetition of the speech's most famous refrain. According to King, America's Declaration of Independence and its Constitution serve as a promissory note to all Americans, guaranteeing them the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious, he says, that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. If we stop King's speech right here, a pessimistic interpretation of the metaphor would be possible. His point might be that America has always been bankrupt, never intending to keep its promise, and never having sufficient funds, in the sense of never having had sufficient goodwill and respect for black people, to grant them freedom and equality. But this is, of course, not King's conclusion. He proclaims, We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation, and so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us, upon demand, 
the riches of freedom and the security of justice. Of course, a check backed by sufficient funds is, by definition, not a bad check. In what sense, then, was a bad check ever given? If America has the resources to offer all its people justice and freedom, doesn't it simply owe those things? And does it not stand condemned for refusing to deliver? One of King's contemporaries thought so. In a speech known as God's Judgment of White America, given in December of 1963, Malcolm X stated, We want no integration with this wicked race that enslaved us. We want complete separation from this race of devils. But we should not be expected to leave America and go back to our homeland empty-handed. After 400 years of slave labor, we have some back pay coming, a bill owed to us that must be collected. In another speech given in that same month, X dismissed the March on Washington as an outing, a picnic, nothing but a circus with clowns and all. From his point of view, black leaders like King had been co-opted and controlled. It was the same old story of the white deviousness that was more insidious than the crude violence meted out by a Bull Connor or Jim Clark. Thanks in part to such comments, X is routinely portrayed as a contrast to King, the antithesis to his thesis. To give another example drawn from cinema, a major film by Spike Lee ends by putting contrasting quotations from King and X on the screen. But were these two leaders really so diametrically opposed? Do the right thing, and join us over the next episodes to find out, as we speak to Martin Luther King Jr. expert Mina Krishnamurti about King next time, and ask her, among other things, about how his ideas compared to those of Malcolm X here on The History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 